welcome to the Intern Whisperer Live, the show all about the future of work. So I always love how Caesar opens our show, Michael. He brings a lot of energy and he starts us off really, really well. So hopefully that gave you a little bit of a jolt because you went, what? What is that all about? So anyway, we start off our show with an interim whisper tip of the week. And as a reminder for our listeners, you can hear these new tips from previous episodes. But today we're going to look at the Department of Labor's sixth criteria for unpaid internships. And it comes straight from the tear-off sheet that the Department of Labor has. And it states specifically, exactly, the extent to which the intern's work complements rather than displaces the work of paid employees while providing significant educational benefits to the intern. So what all of that means to our employers is this criteria is really honing in that the work has to benefit the student it complements what they are learning in school, so it needs to be tied to their major. And in simple terms, you have to mentor your intern. Because remember, they're there to learn how to do a job according to your job description, and mentoring is key. So we welcome all listeners that may not be our customers yet to go to internpursuit.tech to learn more about how you can become an employer for change and hone your mentoring skills while growing your business. So Michael Timmons, we have the famous professor, Michael Timmons, here from the Biological and Environmental Engineering uh, Program at Cornell University. Welcome here, Michael. I see you wearing that fancy hat. Making salmon great again. <laughs> How fun. I want one now. Hello, Susan. Wow. Where do you get that hat? Is that on your merchandise store? Can I buy one? Wow, my favorite youngest redheaded daughter gave it to me for Christmas. Wow, you're very special. That says a lot. Your favorite, too. So tell us about your educational background and biological and environmental engineering. Wow, that sounds very, very like rocket science. Yeah, I tell everyone I, I also do toenails. All right. <laughs> That, uh, That's interesting, too. Well, toenails are biology. I grew up in Ohio near Columbus, and I went to Ohio State University, and I majored in agricultural engineering. And people usually go, what is agricultural engineering? And I go, yeah, right. Well, there's a hint. It involves agriculture, and it involves engineering, right? And the emphasis is on engineering and what is engineering engineering is applied physics to problems and you solve them so engineers like to solve problems so i solve problems associated with agriculture so i grew up on a farm not too far from ohio state university and we had uh, dairy and uh, hogs that's pretty good in science and math Right. Actually, the week before I went off to the big town, you know, Columbus, the uh, county commissioner told my dad, Tell Mike, you got to be in agricultural engineering. I wanted to be a lawyer. And so I actually signed up in the pre-law and all this but county commissioner's name, who was also a hog farmer, said, Tell Michael, agricultural engineering, it's the profession of a big future because producing food, even back then, so I went I went to Ohio State University as a freshman in 1967. Caesar, can you believe that? We actually had universities back in 1967. Wow. <laughs> I, I rode an automobile 
right? Back then they called them the machine. The old people, they called them the machine because they used to have horses. So this is the machine. So I went off to Ohio State University and I majored in agricultural engineering. So how did you get into, end up going into teaching? Because you've been teaching for a while. Yeah, a long, long time. So after Ohio State University, I graduated in 71, and that was right when the aerospace industry was shutting down. But thousands and thousands and thousands of engineers out of the market. I started applying for jobs, and I had 72, excuse me, remember this, I had 72 rejection letters. It's worse than me trying to get a date, you know? (laughs) And so there was this advertisement from the University of Hawaii in uh, Manoa, Honolulu, and it said half-time research assistant. And I went, Hawaii, half-time, sounds pretty good, right? So I went down there, kind of like, went down there. It turned out I was in graduate school. I didn't even know I was going to graduate school, but I ended up in graduate school at the University of Hawaii. I got my master's degree there. That was interesting too, because I'm from the mainland and I'm near Hawaii. Hawaiians logo is like everybody comes down there and you're like, ah, uh, what kind of stamp does it take to send them back to the United States? And logo, we are part of the United States, that they regular local stamp, you know. So after uh, two years there, I left in uh, late December. I actually met my wife who's uh, from Tokyo, which if you think back, Isabel, I said my favorite redheaded daughter. So how does a guy like me with I used to have I still have hair. See, look at that. I used yeah. to have Blonde, brown, curly hair, brown and blue eyes. They're real, right? They are. They're Japanese and out comes my daughter, Margaret, with red hair. I'm like, oh, how does this happen? That makes you interested in genetics. So I'm actually kind of interested in genetics. So I came back to, uh, after graduating, I came back to London, Ohio, which is it's county contiguous to Franklin County, which is metropolitan Columbus. So there's a lot of urban pressure on the next county. And I worked in agriculture there in terms of grains and things like that. And again, food production. And then my wife decided, you know, Michael, you should get a PhD and save the world. Pretty much like that. So where do you go if you're an agricultural engineer? You want to go to a land grant school. So believe it or not, went to Cornell University, which is the land grant institution for New York, just like Ohio State is the land grant institution for Ohio, Purdue, Texas A&M. All the states have a land grant school. This goes back to 1860 and President Lincoln saying, you know, we ought to really have some research going on around here and help people do the mechanics mechanical engineering, agriculture, how you actually create an infrastructure and a food machine. That's the land grant system. So I went to Cornell and got a PhD in agricultural engineering. And then I went to North Carolina State University in Raleigh and to the biological and agricultural engineering department. That's a long one, right? Biological and agriculture. So I was there for about five years. Worked primarily in the poultry. My dad was an engineer. You just told me about these land grants and every, I did not know that. And I'm sitting there going, well, that kind of explains a lot because he went to Wichita State. I don't know if that's an agriculture school also, but now, man, I'm going to go and check. I think in Florida, it's University of Florida. 
Yeah, there's actually, there's two land grant schools in most of the, the states south of the Mason-Dixon. One are called the 1890 schools. Those were the historically, they're created as black or university land grant. They're called the 1890 schools. That's Florida A&M, okay, FAMU, which is up, you know, next to uh, Gainesville. And now they pretty much mainstream. There's not really hardly any difference anymore. But those are the 1890 schools. So in the south, southeast, there's two land grant schools. In the rest of the country, there's one land grant school. Pretty interesting. I didn't know that for a long time. So some of my two of the people, one of my classmates at Cornell, his name is Charles McGee. Uh, he was the uh, department chairman in the agriculture engineering department at Florida A&M. And then another graduate from our same department, Nate Bailey, is the department chairman now at Florida A&M. I almost came there on sabbatical a year ago. But um, couldn't quite work out the mechanics. So I ended up doing sabbatic at Florida Atlantic University, Harvard Branch Oceanographic Institute in Fort Pierce. Well, this is really interesting. So people in my age group, there was Jacques Cousteau, who explored the ocean in his little submarine. While Jacques Cousteau's little submarine was based at Harvard Branch Oceanographic Institute. And that is a major research institution that was sponsored by one of the Johnsons, as in Johnson & Johnson Wax or Band-Aids, I can never remember which one. But then about 15 years ago, Harvard Branch Oceanographic Institute was absorbed by Florida Atlantic University, one of the leading research institutions in the whole world. And so that's where I did a year, a uh, half year actually, in 2020. That was also where I, since they didn't pay me anything, I don't know, I, I thought it was worth more than a dollar, but they figured that out. So I um, started a business, and the business I started was Atlantic Pacific Jade, which is a farm that produces fish and vegetables aquaponically, and we'll talk more about that, I'm sure, as the show progresses. Interesting stuff, Mike. Really, really interesting. So I wanted to ask you, how do you define what aquaculture is and why is this so important like, to what's going on in the world right now? Great question, Caesar. So do you know what agriculture is? I'll tell you, right? What is agri- what's the difference between agriculture and just going out and looking for fruits and nuts and things like that, right? You cultivate the soil in a controlled way. You put seed in the ground, you fertilize it, water. That's agriculture. Okay. Aquaculture is the same thing. We culture food in the water. That could be fish, or it could be vegetables, it could be uh, bivalves, anything. Water organisms that are farmed are is called aquaculture. So when we farm fish, okay, then we harvest them. It contributes a portion of the seafood that we eat. When I started in this business, let's call it 1985. 83, 85, okay? Way back then, okay, is that the farm seafood contributed about 5% of the total seafood we consume. And the rest of the seafood that we would eat would come from what we call wild catch. Big nets in the ocean, line pot, all those things. That's what we call that wild catch. So that was like 95% of the seafood. Now, like about two years ago, more than half so we're going from 5% to 50%, more than half of the seafood that we consume now is farmed seafood. You might ask them, like, 
Well, why is that? Hmm. Okay. Well, the answer is everything's always driven by economics, of course, but supply and demand. So the wild catch keeps contributing about 90 million metric tons a year. And that number just kind of stays the same. And so if that number kind of stays the same and we have more and more and more people all the time, where do you think it comes from, Caesar? Farming! That makes sense. Excellent. As you know, you can only get what you can get. Because this is another interesting thing. You know, our Earth is very big, right? It's like at least two-thirds of the surface of the Earth is covered with water. So you might think like, well, there's a lot of water out there. But not very much of that water is productive. So almost all the fish are within, you know, 100 miles or so. 150 miles or so of the land edge. So that's why we have these territory rules and fishermen get really angry with each other. They're like, oh, you can't come across that line because these are our fish. And the fish don't care. They just don't. So there's not really that much of the ocean that's actually productive for fish. I say, let's raise the fish on the land and tanks and ponds and things like that. Good stuff, Freddy. You, the past 10 minutes, you, you explained a lot to me that I would have never figured out. I appreciate that. So on to, in addition to being a Cornell, teaching at Cornell University, you also have a private business called Professor T. Fish. So tell us about that business and the services and what, what made you want to start that business? Well, don't tell anyone, but I love selling things. I love, I love like, wouldn't you, wouldn't you like to buy this? It's really great, you know? And then and someone buys something, I go, oh, even in high school, I was class president, but I like selling things. So I created this situation where our class could make money. I like making money, right? Because I like making money so I can give it away. And so we'd make money by, uh, we'd sponsor the Battle of the Bands. And so the Battle of the Bands are different high schools that come with their bands. And then we have this competition. And how did you vote? Well, you had to have a ticket. So we would sell the tickets and we would make a lot of money. And then I would put it in the treasury and then we would give it away. So I always like selling things. So, and I've always, remember, I'm from a farm. I like science and math. We actually really have a big problem, Caesar, because right now our population is you know, about six and a half billion people. But in the next 30 years or so, there's going to be another two billion people. Well, where, where's that food going to come from? You know, being serious, right? You know, global warming is an issue, that's for sure. But that's not, I tell you, what's really serious is when you cannot feed your family. And when you cannot feed your family or your country is a net deficit on food, some bad things can happen. So we really have to address this issue of being able to feed ourselves. Okay, and how are we going to do that? Well, the most sustainable way of producing food is aquaculture. Now, aquaculture coupled with, see, aquaculture can be plants or animals, but people think of aquaculture as fish, and they think of hydroponics or controlled environment, agriculture as greenhouses producing plants, okay? So, I have some visual aids. Ooh. Oh, yeah. Okay. So you might ask the question. Okay. You see this? 
this is a this is a plant, right? Actually, it's an onion. See the roots? Yeah, um, it's a green onion, right? It's green onion. Okay. So normally, stick these things in the ground, right? And then they get big and you eat them. And you do that with most plants, right? In the soil, right? But the nutrients, I love this. Don't you love this, Isabel? The nutrients that the plant needs to grow, how do they get into the plant? They get in through the roots. How are the nutrients transported there? It's through water. So that's why when your plant, at the soil gets really dry, the plant goes, right? it, it ties because one, it's always desiccating and evapotranspiring moisture. And then if it doesn't have any nutrients, it dies, right? So typically we put the plant in this, put the seed in the soil and we water the plant and it grows. But we had water and we put it in here. This is hydroponics, i.e. soilless culture of plants. Okay. So that is hydroponics. Wow. Cesar. Wow. Isabella. It sounds simple. It is simple. Okay. Now we're talking about hydroponics. Okay. Hydroponics. What stirs your cup, Isabella? Well, right now, hydroponics stirs my cup. Okay. So what do you and I need every day to survive? Water. Well, yeah, but can we survive on water forever? No, no. air. We need nutrients. That's it. Oh, <laughs> and air. <laughs> That's why we eat stuff, right? So I ask my plant, what do you want to eat today? And they go, I'm kind of hungry. So I go, hold on, plant. I'll be right back. Look at what I got. Fertilizers. Look. Look at my fertilizer, okay? So I'm gonna put that fertilizer, which is nothing wrong with fertilizer. I'm gonna put this fertilizer in the water, stir it up, it all dissolves. And now those chemicals have solubilized in the water column. And now they can be transported through the roots into the plant. And the plant goes, oh boy, now I can grow some more. That you is, are my favorite guest. Oh my gosh. <laughs> this is hydroponics. Okay. Now, what do farmers usually do when they raise wheat and corn and all those soybeans? They put fertilizers into the ground, those solubilize, and then the water transport them into the roots and up into the plant, plant ground. Right? Pretty interesting, huh? I love, it. by the way, I love this stuff. You know? mm -hmm. I can okay. tell. You're super I'm, passionate. Now, you've heard of organic produce. Well, what is organic produce? Hmm. Everything, you can almost say almost everything is organic. But a long time ago, Cesar, when I was a young boy, okay, we had the organic movement, okay? And by the way, if you look at pictures of it, at one point I had pigtail. And uh, if you're an organic farmer, you kind of have to like look like an organic farmer. And back in the... 60s, okay, we'd have long hair and things hanging on us, you know, and, okay. And so we would go, yeah, we got to do this naturally. We got to do it naturally. And so we go, well, the most natural way of farming is using animal waste, animal manures, and we'd take the manures from the barn 
and then we would put them into the soils and then those would mineralize, create nutrients for the plants. Or if we're a bigger farmer, we'll put one type of crop one year, like a green crop, and then we'll plow that under. So that mineralizes. It's really neat stuff. So like some plants will fixate. Okay, here's a question, class. What percentage of the air is nitrogen? And you go, hmm, a lot, right? So the answer is 78%. Uh, yeah, yeah. So then there's about 20%. So what's, what is 78 and 20? 98, right? So oxygen and nitrogen make up like 98% of all the gases in the air that we breathe. And then there's like another 10 or 15 gases that make up the rest. Okay, the next biggest one is uh, carbon dioxide. So plants, oh, here's an interesting question. If you and I died and we went, you know, dust to dust and ashes to ashes, right? I weigh, let's say I weigh 200 pounds, right? Let's say I weigh 100 pounds. That's a little bit. I weigh 100 kilo. That's easy. 100 pounds. If I died and I turned to ash, right? I'm, I'm about 20% ash. The rest of me is, is water, so that goes away right away. And that 20% is left over. A lot of that is carbon, and so that can actually volatize and go off into the atmosphere as carbon dioxide. And then we just have a few minerals left that are non-carbon, like two or three percent. So I'm two or three percent ash, I'm like 18% carbon, and then the rest of me is water, okay? So we put these manures in the ground or these ground cover crops that fixate nitrogen from the air. That's how we get nitrogen down there into the soil so the plant can absorb it, okay? And so this became kind of, um, you became, an, back then you became an organic farmer because you thought it was kind of like the right thing to do. This is the, this is the right way to produce food because they didn't use the word back then, but it's sustainable. We're recycling nutrients. I don't know whether you notice or not. If you want to be a regular person, you have to have those commercials. They come on like, are you feeling regular? You know, so you got to have a regular movement every day, right? So you eat things and most of it goes out into your regular movement of the day. And so most of what we feed ourselves goes right back out. Okay. But either goes out as fecal bowel movements, right? Here's a question. There's a bowel and Caesar, right? Okay. Breathe in. Breathe out. Okay. Now I'll give you a hint here. When you breathe in, the carbon dioxide of what you breathe in was probably like four or five hundred parts per million carbon dioxide. When we breathe out, it was a big number because we're expelling carbon dioxide. Where did the carbon dioxide come from? Ah, it came from the stuff we ate. So <laughs> most of all we eat is carbon, which turns into carbon dioxide. It's really amazing, right? Wow. So back to these guys, you know, they're like organic farmers. And so people started noticing that there was organic produce, like at farmer's markets, and they would eat it. And they go, wow, this really tastes great. And wow, by the way, it's also good for the earth because it's sustainable, maybe. Okay. And so they started getting a premium for their food. So regular carrots are a dollar a bunch and organic carrots from Jose for mangas, right? It has organic care, they like three bucks, right? Because people would say, those, those organic carrots, they're worth more, not only one, they're produced sustainably, it's a good thing, right? This is like, you know, this is like in the 60s, right? Well, then guess what happened? 
commercial guys. I love commercial guys. You know, if you don't make money, you can't, you know, you can't stay in business, right? And I teach a course at Cornell for a long, long time. I tell a lot of courses at Cornell. One of my favorite, I know all my favorites. I love teaching. I only figured that out. I love teaching. One of them was a course in entrepreneurship. And so like, the first class, I, I like say two things. I say, think about this. First, I say, who wants to be an entrepreneur and start their own business? You know, and, and I said, well, think about this. If everybody worked for someone, there would be no one to work for. Some people actually have to start businesses, you know, and employ people like yourself, you know. So I tell my students like, hey, here's a good way to get a job. Start a business and employ yourself. You know, it works every time, you know. Hey, Mike, I think uh, I'm interviewing you for a job. Yeah, can I have a job? Yeah, okay, so I hired myself, okay. The other thing I would say to them, who wants to go into sales? So these are, you know, Cornell engineers, you know, these really bright kids, you know. I say, who wants to go into sales? And like, almost no one will hold up their hand. And I go, like, everybody's in sales. You're always selling. If you're working with someone else, you got to sell your idea to them. If you can't sell your idea, then your idea is not implemented. If your idea is not implemented, how are you going to make the world a better place, right? If no one's thought anything, there's no I'm going to add to that. I'm going to add to that because I say the same thing. And I say, so how did you get your boyfriend or girlfriend to go out with you? You had to be able to sell yourself, right? You Not literally, but like, why should they go out with you? You're being your best. And the same is like every time you go for a job interview someplace or try to get friends, you're still selling, whether it's persuasion or friendship or whatever, even with your, if it's kids with parents, you're still trying to, Hey, I want to get a cookie. Can I have a cookie? Uh, no, you cannot have a cookie. So there's negotiation going on to get that cookie. And then, well, I'll do five chores to get a cookie. Okay. Yes, you just sold something. Yeah. So then, so then another question. I uh, so then I teach uh, teach aquaculture surprise, right? And I kind of teach it from basic principles because it's an engineering course. I always start out those classes. I say I ask them. I have to ask the two questions. Is anyone's family in the seafood business? And if no one holds their hand up, I say, well, the seafood business is one of the most crooked industries in the world. Crooked, right? Because there's such an incentive to cheat because most people look at a fish like, uh, here's a fish. I go, oh, yeah, that's a red snapper. Really? Yeah, it's a red snapper. Most people, they cannot... They don't know what they're doing, right? A red, okay, well, let's take uh, Copper River wild salmon from British Columbia that does a run once a year. That stuff is like $30 a pound and regular old Atlantic salmon from a net pen is $6.99 a pound. Most people look at an Atlantic salmon filet, Copper River salmon, can't tell. Most people cannot, but most people can tell like this is a fish and it's not a pig, you know? That's, oh, this is shrimp. Okay, this is, this is not shrimp. I know this is not shrimp. I know it's shrimp. Okay, this is a fish, right? So there's such incentive to mislabel seafood products. So that's why we have rules, you know, USDA, United States Department of Agriculture, we have rules on like country of origin labeling. So that's called cool. See, all of us guys in the seafood industry, we always want to be cool. So now we can be, see? 
C-O-O-L, country of origin labeling. So I'm cool. I always wanted to be cool. Many seafood counters do not follow those rules. So seafood is, so, so I asked them another question, right? So once I find out almost no one's ever in seafood industry, then I can actually speak frankly. Sometimes people are in the seafood industry and I'd say it more gently than that. I'm, and I talk about it, the incentive to cheat and things like that. Okay, the next question I ask them is I say, um, how many people think they're going to go into the food industry? And they'll go, I'm a culinary engineer. I want to go in the food industry. I'm going like, you know, about a third of our whole working force is in the food industry. So pay attention, right? It's amazing. That amount of our labor force, sales, marketing, food service, restaurants, it's huge. That's why, you know, I'm not being political here. This last year of COVID has been so devastating, you know, on the food industry. Okay. Depending where you are, because people aren't eating out. Oh, like it hurt me a lot. This company I started, this was your professor T. No one's buying seafood. Okay. Except who's buying? People at home who want the seafood delivered to their home. So that's what Professor T. Fish does. We sell direct. Actually, when I was doing that, you know, Ted show, I said, I said, some people call me Dr. Prop because I have a lot of props. So here's one. See this? Sea scallops. These are from uh, Bristol, Maine. And they're the only fair trade scallops sold in the United States. Okay. They're really, really good. I love scallops. Oh, they're so good. They're, I, I cooked some for Easter. Uh, I took them and put a piece of bacon around and broiled them. Oh, really, really good. You might say, well, those aren't your scallops, Dr. Timmons. I'm going, yeah, but they're my partners. So if you go onto my professort.fish website, I have my 10 commandments, which I follow. And one of those is- uh, That's one of our questions. What are they? I have to that. So one of them is I only sell seafood, has no antibiotics, no hormones, and either you grew it or you know where it's coming from. So it's traceable, okay? Mm-hmm. Over there, this is who handled it. I'm selling it to you. I have my own production here in Vero uh, Beach, Florida. So everybody come on down, all my Cornell friends. It's really easy to get here, I'll tell you. I have a 15 acre farm. And on that farm, I have uh, a tilapia, tilapia, T-I-L-A-P-I-A. That's good fish too. Yeah, when I when I started working in tilapia, nobody even had heard of the tilapia. And in fact, my father, uh, would, he kind of knew I was working. He said, um, "What's that fish? It's the Toyota, uh, tapioca." I go, uh, "No, that tilapia, tilapia." So I predicted that it would go up about thirty percent per year, which it did. So we went from the consumer eating no tilapia to becoming like the top five, okay, in terms of seafood consumption. So number one is shrimp. The top 10 seafoods accounts for like, you know, 90% of what we eat in, in terms of seafood. Top three or four, shrimp, and then uh, salmon, and then uh, tilapia's in there, and then a whole bunch of other things, right? But very good fish. Because, it, you know, you know what, what I like talking? about it is it doesn't have a really strong flavor. And it's very, very, I guess, I don't know, tender, flaky, something like that. It's not a tough fish. So it's very yummy. It's, I think, the best fish that's out there. Yeah, you hit it exactly on the head, Isabella, because it doesn't taste like fish. Mm-hmm. It tastes like nothing. Right? It's like the Seinfeld show. It's a show about nothing. 
So tilapia is a secret about nothing because it has no flavor. So it it tastes like you cook it. Mm-hmm. So it's spicy, spicy. Do you want it to taste like However you want to cook it. So I could eat I could eat tilapia almost every night. On the other hand, salmon, I love salmon, but Me salmon too. tastes like salmon. Yeah. And I could only eat salmon about once a week because it really tastes like salmon. Now I can eat pizza about every night and I can eat peanut butter sandwiches every day for lunch. But salmon, <laughs> tilapia, it's also called, uh, when we were trying to get this going in the United States, the marketing, so there's American Tilapia Association. We hired a marketing firm and they came up with tilapia, a palate, as in a, a palate for the taste. So mm. they really, they're also, they're, um, they're also herbivores, so they eat plants, so they're not carnivorous. So it's very sustainable. I love to love them. Where, where are they normally located? Are they all over the uh, world? Well, okay. Uh, I'm not an evangelist here, okay, but we just went through Easter. Right? So the story of uh, Jesus feeding the 5,000, a lot of people think those were a lot of those were tilapia. And then when uh, old Peter and Andrew throw their nets over the side, I think that was tilapia in the in the egyptian tombs paintings they actually show tilapia and the, the painting so they're native to the nile in fact one of the one of the species is called nilotica nile from the nile so that's where they were that's where they originated is in uh, northern africa mm. that's very interesting so you covered a lot of good stuff here. I'm trying to figure out, like, where did we leave off? I don't know, Caesar. You're probably keeping up with it better oh, than the- Can I interject? Go ahead. Oh, okay. So back to my prop, okay? This is hydroponics. We all got that, right? Okay, that's hard. Yeah. For 20-some years or more, I did recirculating aquaculture systems, recirculating systems. This is like aquariums and we put a fish in it. Look, see my fish? That yeah. is orange snapper, a butterball, a butterball, butterball snapper, okay? Now, that is a fish pond, that's a fish tank. And then what do, we, and what do fish need every day? Nutrition? Yeah, right. So what do we have to do to our fish? We have to, yeah, watch. Okay, so let's see if we get down here. Oh, oh, this is gonna be tricky. Okay, so I am going to, you know what? I'm feeding my fish. See, those are pallets of fish food. Can you see them? Yeah. Going for the food. Yeah, they're floating pallets. Actually, it's pretty realistic of how you do this, right? And so the fish will eat those pallets, okay? Um, Fish are what you eat, so you can create any nutritional profile on the protein by what you feed them. Okay, so we'll feed them really good stuff, right? And so what happens when we, what happens when we eat? Then, you know, then we have a GI system that things go through. Bits. <laughs> Fish are just like us. They excrete almost everything you feed them. So guess what? When you move the nutrients from here, over to here, not using fertilizers, that is called aquaponics. So they coexist. Come from the fish organically. That is so cool. I, 
That is. I used to, me being a Cornell scientist, you know, for a, for a long, long time, uh, my, my mentor and, and PhD advisor was a fellow named Lou Albright. And Lou Albright was an agricultural engineer. And he worked with one of the world-renowned plant scientists named, named Bob Langens. And so Bob Langens and Lou Albright formed a team and they created the CEA program at Cornell. So that's the Controlled Environment Agriculture Program. And they did hydroponics. And that's all they did, hydroponics. And so I would do recirculating aquaculture and Albright and Langens would do Controlled Environment Agriculture, hydroponics. And the one thing we had agreed on was like, never take, take this complicated hydroponic system and this complicated fish system and put them together because if you put two complicated systems together, what do you have? A really complicated system. So you would never, ever, ever, ever do that because to be successful and repetitive and not have disasters. So remember, when mechanical things break, right? I mean, think about this. Space Challenger, 1983, we watched Sally Ride, and they were all watching, you know, and there goes, there goes the rocket, and boom. Just think how many engineers and backup systems they had, and it went boom, right? So pretty complicated system, right? So you would never take two complicated systems and put them together and expect anything good. So I teach a lot of short courses around the world. I teach a corner, but I teach these courses on when including Harvard branch or the against period. I've come down here for years and years. And so I'd be teaching recirculating aquaculture. Someone, someone would say, Dr. Timms, what, what about aquaponics? That's really great. I go, yeah, really great. Yeah, they grow faster, better, they taste better. That's right, great. I was like, do you have any data? No, but it's really great. So I listened to this for like 20 years. Right? That's really great. So you got any data? So I'm a scientist. Right? So finally, about eight years ago, I said, okay, I've had it. I'm going to run controlled experiments at Cornell, you know, one of the leading institutions in the whole world. I ran controlled research and I compared hydroponics to aquaponics. We did lettuce, we did strawberries, we did spinach, and we compared them. Science, you know? where we have replications and we apply statistics and covariance tests and all these kind of things. And guess what? So it's never scientists, they always like to, they can't ever prove anything, right? They just go like, I have a hypothesis. And then it's like, can I reject the hypothesis? Like I have a hypothesis that I'm going to become, I'm going to become a really good golfer. Nah, okay, I, can, I, I ran that experiment. I'm not a good golfer. I mean, that's one of my other passions. So we, we had a hypothesis, hydroponically, produced and aquaponically produced lettuce are the same. That's our hypothesis. So we ran all the science, ran all the science. Guess what? Can't reject the hypothesis. They're the same. It's amazing. Think about this. Hydroponics, you're putting these inorganic fertilizers in, the pH has to be just right, everything has to be just right, and you can grow them. Right? The aquaponics stuff, you don't do anything. You just take some water from over there and you take the, you put it over there at the plant. They do the same. It's unbelievable. It's so simple. And, and then here's the best part. It's capturing nutrients that would have been discharged into the environment. Not good, right? We put them together. We can capture all the nutrients. In fact, my farm here in Bureau Beach, everybody come down. 
Uh, we are a zero discharge facility, I meaning we don't discharge any water from the pond. And get this, we're going to be a zero carbon footprint. What does that wow. mean? I was, I, I, th I have a confession. You know, I'm supposed to be smart and everything because I'm from Cornell. Remember, you can always tell a man from Cornell, but you can't tell him very much. Anyway, so what is a carbon footprint? I'm like, well, I don't know what a carbon footprint is. Uh, so finally, I asked one of the smartest. Well, let's, can you explain carbon footprint? He goes, yeah, okay. Carbon footprint is the carbon dioxide that is expelled or released into the atmosphere after the process is over. So it's kind of like, who's been by here? Let's look at the footprints. Bigfoot came by here, right? So carbon footprint is the footprints are the carbon dioxide that's released in the atmosphere. Okay. So we think we can do a zero or even a negative carbon footprint. How could you do a negative carbon footprint? You're, remember, almost all that we feed the fish turns into carbon dioxide. If we take that air that's around the fish and we move it over to the greenhouse where the plants are, the plants will assimilate that carbon dioxide and we'll get to negative carbon footprint. That is, that is pretty wow. cool. That is yes, cool. If you, uh, normal carbon dioxide level in the air is about 400 milliparts parts per million or a half percent, something like that. Okay, and um, if you increase that to about a thousand parts per million, which we can do, the plant productivity goes up about 10%. No kidding. Yeah, it's pretty interesting stuff, right? So way back in the dinosaur days, you know, when I had a lot of plants, they think that, uh, they don't think scientists know these things by taking the ice and fertilizing, that the carbon dioxide level in the air was maybe like 20,000, 30,000 ppm. Now we're 400, we're worried it's gonna go to 450, right? So it's, it's like 20,000 back then, okay? And interestingly enough, there are standards by OSHA of what our carbon dioxide levels can be in this room. So if you're teaching in the classroom, or you're working in the factory, you're working anywhere, there are standards on what the carbon dioxide level can be in the atmosphere around you. And like an eight hour uh, exposure limit is something like 20,000, 40,000, something like that. Pretty amazing, huh? Plants would do really, plants would do really well. Anyway, there's a lot, I covered a lot there. I hope I didn't lose anyone. I don't know if it's possible for me to audit it, but I want to go and be in a class. I second that, I second that. Well, you're in luck, you know why? You have two new students here. This is so cool. Cornell has a, uh, a distance university. Okay, they got a couple hundred courses or something like that. And you can take them you know, online. So I teach, I teach this stuff online at ecornell.com slash fish. So remember, it's not .edu, it's .com. So you can take, you can actually get a certificate and uh, we circulate agriculture. And then one of my colleagues and I, I, I did a little bit of it. Her name is Tanya Sawyer. And she did a whole course series on aquaponics. She, she's out in um, Kansas City. That's, those are really Very good. interesting. Uh, if, if some of you are thinking about going into aquaculture or indoor fish farming or hydroponics, aquaponics, do a lot of homework first. And study, study. I did. I found a quote 
that was by you and it was in the Chicago Tribune and it said that even the most successful aquaponic ventures make only about 50,000 a year. This was back in 2016 though. So I wow. you don't do this, I guess, because of the money. You do it because you're being responsible for the world we live in. Well, okay. That quote seems a little bit out of, you hear this, make $50,000 a year. Wow. Am I making $50,000 a year on a little tiny system or am I making $50,000 on a huge system? So you'd have to put in the context of $50,000 on what type of productivity. But farming, the point of that statement is farming is very low margin uh, business. But if you're producing food responsibly, if there's a societal benefit, who pays for that extra cost incurred to produce food responsibly? Mm -hmm. That's a very good philosophical question. So the social scientists will argue about that, but the societal benefit has to be paid by society in some way. Who pays for I education? agree. I agree. Should we pay for education? So I'm going to read between the lines here. I think what you're also saying is it is possible to make a comfortable living if you expand your aquaponic farm more than just like, you know, feeding your family or your neighborhood. That's a good point. Now, what this is actually a really key point for all of you now, like, whoa, let's go out and make money in aquaculture and hydroponics or whatever. Regardless of how much money you have, okay, you want to start with a small Let's start with a small system. Okay, you start with a small system. There is so much to learn. You have to make sure you can do that successfully. So I would start one in my garage or my living room or something like that. Learn how to grow the plants, learn how to raise the fish, learn how to put them together. And then, then once you have that fundamental understanding and expertise, then you can start thinking about, do I want to make this into a business? Do I want this to be my vocation? Do I want this to be my full-time job? And I love what I do, so it's not work, right? So at the very beginning, so we're going to work. I don't work. I don't work. I haven't worked a day in my life for like the last 50 years because I love what I do. So it's not work. It's just mm -hmm. like, I, I agree. I think you have a second career, though, or a third career that you haven't tapped into. Do you know what it is? Sales. No. Stand-up comedy. You yeah. had me in Oh, me. Educational stand-up. I always did want to go. I always, I want to, I want to be a stand-up comedian. I really do. You know, like Jerry Seinfeld. He's like one of my idols. Did you see his show, Comedians in Cars? No, Comedians in Cars with Coffee. I think that's it. Have you seen it? Yeah, I think I would love it. I'm sure. Oh, I'm sure you would. It's on Netflix. Go look for it. It is really, really good. He does all of these interviews with comedians that are amazing and by the way i researched that one too he is the number one highest paid comedian in the country 950 million uh dollars is what he has you know what he could do with that big fortune he could make he could turn it into a small fortune getting into aquaculture oh i think he uses it to buy cars i don't think he's interested in that <laughs> He buys coffee yeah. and really expensive farming. cars. Farming, uh, farming because you love it. Well, this has been just amazing. I really want to thank you for being on the show today. I know we didn't cover everything in there, but what is 
just as a parting piece of advice, what is the most important mentoring advice that you would pass on to anybody, whether it's in education or aquaponics? What is it that you think is the most important tidbit of information we should know as, as a mentor? Because you, you would be like my mentor. <laughs> I think you are hysterical and you've taught me a lot about just business as well as fish. My advice is do something that you can be passionate about. You got to love what you do. And mm-hmm. we, we all don't have that opportunity because sometimes we, you know, we, we're doing what we love, what we want to do. We don't have to make enough money to like eat, okay? But do the other job and then what you like really love doing, do that on the side. And then maybe that'll turn into a business and then you can do it full time. Never nice. get passion. You know, your passion of what you want to do. I think that passion generally revolves around helping other people in some way. I agree. We are so blessed. I mean, we're watching this podcast. We are so blessed to be able to do that. There's so many people that are so much less fortunate than So try to help someone else. I think that's a, a great way to finish our show. Well, we're going to thank Camp 5 Studios for being the uh, sponsor of our show. The Intern Whisperer is brought to you by Cat5 Studios, who help you create games and videos for your training and marketing needs that are out of this world. Visit Cat5 Studios for more information to learn how Cat5 Studios can help your business. Thank you, Cat5 Studios. And also for our production team, Cesar Delgado, Associated Producer Intern, and our video and auditing team, Steve Neese, Ashley Gonzalez, and Nala Ely. For any of our listeners, be sure to go visit internpursuit.tech to learn how you can get matched with amazing intern talent. Michael, thank you so much. Give us one more shout out about how people can find you. That website is unique. What is your website? Professor T. Fish. That's an easy one. Fish. People remember that. It's easy enough to get it. It's his professor, his title, the letter T. And then dot fish. So I love this. Thank you so much. You have just been amazing and you have such energy. Yeah, you were awesome. Oh, let me give you one other one because this is all about Orlando. APJplus.com. This is a joint venture with uh, Claude Smith, Real Second Chance. This is going to uh, change the world, of course, but it's providing... Is provide what my job is to provide the food into the project for Orlando. And that's putting putting people at all different skill levels to work, uh, giving them meaning in their life and allowing them to be a contributor to society. So that's apjplus.com. So that's just rolling out right now. That's what I do on Ted's show. Well, thank you for sharing that also. And a special shout out to Claude Smith with a real second chance also. Yeah, that's uh, very meaningful. All righty. Well, thank you so much. You have a lovely evening and I appreciate you being here. Thank you, Caesar. Of course. Thank you, Michael. You were really awesome. Learned so much. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. I always like sharing. Let's listen to what Dr. Timmons shares about aquaponics on the TED show. Mike, tell us what we're talking about today. So we're talking about I have a lot of props, you know. My props. I love your props. Okay, so, oh, okay, Ted, here's a quiz for you. What kind of fish is that? Oh, it's a goldfish. It's a yellow snapper. 
I failed already. Oh, man. And what is this? Oh, that's an orange roughie. No, this is <laughs> this is a uh, geranium. Wait, I got to look at it. It's like a real plant, you know? Oh, so, it's a plant. Yeah, because we uh, we typically grow plants in a what's called a soilless culture. You see any soil in there, Ted? I don't see any soil in there. What's that? What's soilless culture? What's that called? It's called hydroponics. I love it. Yeah, when you and 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 in, in, in fish farming, when we start doing it in recirculating aquaculture, called RAS, I get all razzed up about this. You know, RAS. <laughs> I'm the uh, with I I, I, I I for a Cornell professor, I'm pretty humble. Okay, <laughs> that means I'm gonna let you go with that one. My ego is only as big as this room. Okay, and I, <laughs> I have a small Cornell ego. Okay. Uh, I love it. But uh, we we uh, we raise fish. I used to raise money, and I'd say, hey, I, I produce fish with no water. They go, oh, Dr. Timmons, you can't do that. I said, well, I use a little bit of water. I use like one five thousandth of the water that you would use in conventional fish farming. And as you know now, Ted, having interviewed me, this would be the fifth time. Water. Is it five? It's our lucky five? Five. Give me five, Ted. Woo. Okay. So water is probably our biggest constraint right, in uh, food production. And so conventional agriculture uses a lot of water, but we do it hydroponically. We use 90% less water. And if we raise fish, which is the most efficient way to produce protein, it uses one five thousandth of the water that conventional fish farm would use. But, you know, what do you do? What do you have to, what do we do every day, like two or three times a day? Eat. Eat. Yeah, so we have to feed Ooh. these fish. Okay, so I have so I put feed in here and then the fish assimilate part of it, but most of it they here's a big technical term. They poop. Okay. <laughs> you know, I know it's coming every time and yet it still makes me giggle like a ten year old boy. I don't know why. <laughs> so we, 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 we a, lot of, a lot of technology on here. Okay, so we we mineral what's called mineralize that poop right and that puts nutrients into the water and then we take the nutrients from the fish and we put them into the water where the plants are and guess what they grow really really well okay so but why is that important like i know i'm it's a it's a question i i believe i know the answer to but when people sometimes tune in they're like all right ted but why why does this matter what is this going to do how is it going to help me what's they don't understand i think the world the impact that this can have uh, on our on our agriculture or what do we call it um, our aquaculture yeah so uh, i'm gonna put on this hat see what this oh hat? good put on the hat i like it this is the aquacultural engineering society so i can answer this question now so yeah I have to... <laughs> okay. so, so we got to figure out how we're going to feed two billion more people by about in the next 20 30 years okay so how are you going to do that? You know, we've already used up all the good land, right? And the land is getting less and less. We use up all the good water sources. And so if we're going to feed people, right, we have to be creative and responsible to do that. And so we have to maximize the assimilation of these nutrients that we feed the fish. And the way we do that is to couple it with a hydroponic system. Okay. Now, relating back to immediate you know, Orlando. Orlando. Right. 
So we have a, um, I, I think, I think we, you're part of this, right? We, I think we are involved in probably the most significant, well, the, this will be the most significant revolution to date. Okay. So we had the green revolution, you know, put wheat, you know, in a productive arena that people actually have grains to eat and that carbon. And then we had the blue revolution, which is aquaculture. And now we have, I think we had to, we had to come up with a name. I think we're going to call it something like, uh, something like global, global food revolution. Oh, global food revolution. I like it. But we're going to start in Orlando and, in fact, in the community called Paramore. Yes. All right. I'm letting you talk. I love this. Yeah. So what's Paramore, right? It, um, you know, all, all large cities have a challenge. Uh, they call it the old part of the city, you know, that has been um, has deteriorated for a wide variety of reasons. Most of it is related to economic development and real jobs. And so I think, the, of course, there's a fellow named Claude Smith that probably a lot of you know who's leading this effort, and Stephen Badash, they're leading this. And I'm just kind of a little add-on, but they all need to eat food, Todd. So they go, <laughs> What are we gonna do yeah. about the food? Oh, call Timmons, you know that. Oh, that guy because he actually is. Oh, we do have props today. Nice entrepreneurial. <laughs> so, I started a farm in Vero Beach. Okay, so what's the connection between the two? Right. Well, the Paramore Project is 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 putting people back to work. Um, and uh, giving them meaning, you know, so that they're contributing to society and making that that Paramore community maybe maybe the number one entertainment district in the world. Okay, I mean it's like this <laughs> is so exciting. Okay, it really is. But they gotta eat. So Claude and Stephen Ash, they go, "Hey, Doctor T." So I put my smart Cornell hat on, right? So I go. He's got the smart hat back on. You got the smart hat because I got to. I got to be smart now. You know? <laughs> I'll tell you what, aquaponics. Aquaponics is the most efficient way to produce food. 